Section 42 of Shakespeare Identified This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Loney Section 42 Chapter 14 Posthumous Considerations Quote, Although Shakespeare's powers showed no sign of exhaustion, he reverted in 1607 to his earlier habit of collaboration, and with another's aid composed Timon of Athens, etc. Unquote. Sir Sidney Lee We have seen that up to the time of the death of Edward de Vere, new Shakespearean plays and printed issues of plays formerly staged were appearing at a phenomenal rate. These we have regarded as literary transformations of what had previously existed as stage plays. Our next question is whether Shakespeare's writings, as we now have them, represent a completed or an uncompleted work. Even under the old supposition of an author who spent the last years of his life in retirement from literary work, this question has already been answered and the answer given has again constituted one of the paradoxes of literature. For we are assured that the greatest genius that has appeared in English literature, when he had reached his maturity, and when there was no sign of failing powers, having lined his pockets well with money, retired from his literary labors, leaving in the hands of stage managers the manuscripts of incompleted plays that others at a later date were called upon to finish. Shakespeare's work is therefore admittedly an unfinished performance. Unfinished performances of great geniuses are not unknown in the world, but when they appear one explanation alone accounts for them, an utter inability to proceed, usually death. To neither William Shakespeare, nor to Bacon, nor to anyone else whose name has been raised in this connection, does such an explanation apply. In all these cases we must assume the deliberate abandonment of the work for other interests. In the case of Edward de Vere alone do we get the natural explanation that the writer was cut off in the midst of his work, leaving unpublished some plays that he may have considered finished and others published later, either unfinished or as they had been finished by other writers. To suppose that Shakespeare, having attained the highest rank as a playwriter, whilst still in the heyday of his powers, should, on approaching his zenith, have reverted to his earlier practice of collaborating with others, the master hand in his craft returning to the expedience of his prentice days, is to deny to him the possession of ordinary common sense. And to suppose that he was so indifferent to the fate of his own manuscripts as to leave them to drift amongst unknown actors without arrangements for their preservation and publication is to suppose him incapable of measuring their value. Yet all this is implied in the Stratfordian view, and much of it in the Baconian. Under the De Vere theory, the whole situation assumes for the first time a rational and common-sense appearance. 
prevented by death from completely finishing his task, he had nevertheless been speeding up the issue of his works for some years beforehand, and had friends sufficiently in his confidence to safeguard his manuscripts, and to preserve his incognito when he was gone. The admittedly unfinished character of Shakespeare's work, we maintain, then, can only be rationally explained by supposing that death, and not retirement, had brought his literary activities to a close. This is the first point to be fixed in the statement of our argument from the posthumous point of view. When we turn to examine the issue of Shakespeare's works in relation to Edward de Vere's death, we find facts of a specially interesting and illuminating character. We have already indicated the tremendous outpouring attributed to the six preceding years. Let us now see what happens immediately after his death. There are three points of view from which the dating of the plays may be regarded. First, we have the system of conjectural dating based upon the assumption that the Stratford man was the author. Secondly, there are the ascertained dates of the first known publication of the plays, and thirdly, we have the recorded dates of the various early issues, including revised editions and mere reprints. Beginning with the first, that upon which much of the argument in the last chapter is based, we find, in spite of the fact that it is largely guesswork, founded upon the very views of authorship which we are now questioning, it indicates a distinct check in the issues at the time of Oxford's death. Professor Dowden attributes but one play, King Lear, to the year 1605, and one, Macbeth, to the year 1606, and even this last is treated both by Sir Sidney Lee and by the compiler of the Falstaff notes as very doubtful. At the same time, 1607 is chosen by the former as the year when plays again began to appear in which Shakespeare's work was mixed with that of contemporary writers. Even this hypothetical dating of the plays indicates, therefore, some radical change about the time when Edward de Vere died. As King Lear and Macbeth are ascribed to the two years immediately following the death of Edward de Vere, it has been necessary to examine somewhat closely the data from which such a conclusion has been drawn. The most of this has been brought together in the appendix to the Variorum Shakespeare, and the point on which much of the argument is made to turn is the suggested allusions to the union of the English and Scottish crowns contained in the plays. The rest seems determined by the general scheme of finding reasonable spaces of time in the life of William Shakespeare to get the work done. These allusions to the union of the crowns would be very natural to one who had occupied a foremost position at the coronation, if he happened to be trimming up these particular plays at the time. On the other hand, the general scheme of dating the works does not, as we have seen, apply to the Earl of Oxford. The most significant fact, however, which the study of other authorities brings to light, is that, instead of fixing a definite year for each of these two plays, they assign a period of three years, 1603 to 1606, 
during which they assert these two plays might have been written. It will thus be seen that even these two may fairly be added to the apparently amazing production of the last six or seven years of de Vere's lifetime. Of King Lear, the variorum Shakespeare remarks that, quote, Drake, in Shakespeare and his times, thinks its production is to be attributed to 1604. I think we must be content with the term of three years, 1603 to 1606. No date more precise than this will probably ever gain general acceptance, unquote. The case of Macbeth is even more interesting. Several authorities give again the 1603 to 1606 period, and Grant White affirms, quote, I have little hesitation in referring the production to the period 1604 to 1605, unquote. With this in mind, the quotations given in the Variorum Shakespeare from Messrs. Clark and Wright, Clarendon Press series, showing that Macbeth was a work of collaboration between Shakespeare and another, are of great importance. The question of an arranged collaboration versus interpolation is raised, and the following conclusion arrived at. Quote, On the whole, we incline to think that the play was interpolated after Shakespeare's death, or, at least, after he had withdrawn from all connection with the theater. Unquote. Had the works been dissociated from the Stratford man, or rather if they had been avowedly anonymous from the first, the study of these particular plays would have justified a suspicion that their writer had died about 1604, the year of the death of Edward de Vere. This furnishes the second stage in the development of our posthumous argument. After King Lear and Macbeth, we enter upon the period which begins with Timon of Athens and finishes with Henry VIII. The former, according to the passage we have quoted from Sir Sidney Lee, marking the beginning of work in which collaboration becomes a pronounced feature, and the latter, in which Shakespeare is supposed to lay down his pen, being generally recognized as largely the work of Fletcher. In this period we have great dramas that are no mere prentice work, in which are passages and dramatic situations revealing this great genius at its highest. Yet it is in this work that we meet with deficiencies of poetic finish on the one hand, and the recognized intervention of strange pens on the other, a state of things to which we cannot imagine even a third-rate writer submitting voluntarily. With all deference to Shakespearean scholars, we are bound to say that in respect to the work assigned to this period, wonder and praise seem to have got the better discrimination. There is so much here of Shakespeare's best that there has been a fatal tendency to regard as good what is more than questionable. Even the faults of those who have been called in to finish the work, or possibly even of the author's first rough drafts, have been treated as Shakespeare's most advanced conceptions, and as marks of his poetic development. We would specify, in particular, the uneven versification due to additional syllables in the lines, faulty rhythm and weak endings, which have made so much of the later so-called blank verse 
hardly distinguishable to the ear from honest prose. Our commentators assure us that this ragtime verse shows us the mighty genius bursting his fetters. The real roots of this eulogized emancipation will, however, be readily perceived from a consideration of the following passages from North's Plutarch and Shakespeare's Coriolanus, one of these later plays, for which we are indebted to Sir Sidney Lee's work. North's Plutarch, Prose I am Caius Marcus, who hath done to thyself particularly, and to all the Volses generally, great hurt and mischief, which I cannot deny for my surname of Coriolanus that I bear. Shakespeare's Coriolanus, blank verse. My name is Caius Marcus, who hath done to thee particularly, and to all the Volses, great hurt and mischief. Thereto witness may my surname Coriolanus. At last, then, the secret of this great literary emancipation is out. The people who were, quote, finishing off, unquote, these later plays, took straightforward prose, either from the works of others, or from rough notes collected by Shakespeare in preparing his dramas, and chopped it up, along with a little dressing, to make it look in print something like blank verse. That Shakespeare, living, could have voluntarily suffered such work to go forth as his is inconceivable. The result of such a method has been the production of faulty rhythm and weak endings, and these have been hailed by learned Shakespeareans as tokens of a great poetic liberation. On this plan even a schoolboy might conceivably give us an edition of Newton's Principia, in blank verse. Cymbeline, another of these later plays, is also strongly marked by weak endings and interpolations, and both Professor Dowden and Stanton recognize in the play the participation of an inferior hand. Of Antony and Cleopatra, Sir Sidney Lee remarks, quote, The source of the tragedy is the life of Antonius in North Plutarch. Shakespeare followed closely the historical narrative, and assimilated not merely its temper, but in the first three acts much of its phraseology." Unquote. The case of The Tempest we reserve for special examination in the appendix. The general stamp, then, of this later work is greatness, suggestive of unfailing powers, and defects, suggestive of unfinished workmanship and the intervention of inferior pens, a combination which we claim can only be explained by the death of the dramatist. With the Earl of Oxford substituted for William Shakespeare, much of the guesswork relating to the time when the plays were written ceases to have any value. What is of most consequence now is the date of actual issue. We have, therefore, compiled a list of the dates when the first printed issues of the plays appeared, and although errors may have crept in, owing to the relatively subordinate position hitherto assigned to this particular group of facts, it will presently appear that their general trend is sufficiently well marked for our purpose. Venus and Lucretia were published in 1593 and 1594, respectively 
An interval of four years passed before the printing of the plays began, and even then the first of the series had not Shakespeare's name attached. The sonnets are included in the following list because of their special importance. Three periods of Shakespearean publication after Venus and Lucretia Compiled from Notes to Pocket Falstaff Edition First period, 1597 to 1603 1. Richard II 2. Richard Third, 3. Romeo and Juliet 4. Love's Labor's Lost 5. Henry IV, Part One. Six, Henry the Fourth, Part Two. Seven, Henry the Fifth. Eight, Merchant of Venice. Nine, Midsummer Night's Dream. Ten, Much Ado About Nothing. Eleven, Titus Andronicus. Twelve, Merry Wives of Windsor, Pirated. Thirteen, Hamlet pirated, authentic in 1604. Arrested Publication, 1604 to 1607, inclusive. No new publication. Second period, 1608 to 1609. 1. King Lear. 2. Troilus and Cressida. 3. Pericles. 4. Sonnets. Third period, 1622 to 1623. 1622, Othello. 1623, Folio edition. All the remainder, twenty plays in all, including such well-known names as As You Like It, Taming of the Shrew, Macbeth, Tempest, Julius Caesar, King John, Twelfth Night, Measure for Measure, Two Gentlemen of Verona. All's well that ends well. In the six years from 1597 to 1603, it will be noticed that there were no less than thirteen plays of Shakespeare's printed and published for the first time. Some of these had been staged in previous years, and others were then being both staged and printed for the first time. This brings us to the year before Oxford's death. End of section 42 Recording by David Martin